A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 830 on Monday, August 16th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, Governor Reeves and Dr. Dobbs deliver an update on the state's COVID crisis. Then, a look at HIV in the Deep South. Plus, one Mississippian says a COVID vaccine may have saved her life. And a new report examines American schools named after Confederate leaders. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm not going to sit up here and answer every uh, crazy idea that y'all can come up with. Because it does, uh, it's not productive. Sometimes y'all want to uh, act like uh, depending on the federal aid is a bad thing. That's actually the way the Stafford Act is set Let's up. Let's be honest, okay? I, I know that some of you want to say, well, you know, this is, a, this is a, an easy black or white decision that you either take it, you either believe in the vaccine and get vaccinated, or you don't. I'm going to come back to you in just a minute. If you would not interrupt the others, it would be a lot easier for us to get through this. If you really want a virtue signal, then why are you here in this room? Why don't you go to your house, lock yourself up in the house, because you will not give it to anybody if you don't see anybody. So, again, y'all talking what ifs. A defiant Governor Tate Reeves came out swinging at a press conference held Friday to address the COVID-19 crisis in the state. Over the past few weeks, the governor has weathered criticism for his perceived inaction as the Delta variant of the coronavirus spread unchecked. But Reeves made clear he isn't backing down on issues like masks in schools. I don't have uh, any intention of issuing a statewide mask mandate uh, for any category of Mississippians at this time. I don't, I don't know how I can say that differently other than the way I've said it uh, repeatedly for a number of days and weeks and, and months. Um, if you look at those individuals under the age of 12, uh, what you find is that um, it is very rare that kids under the age of 12 uh, have anything other than the sniffles. Does it happen from time to time? Sure it does. Uh, it, we have had, I believe, um, one fatality uh, of an individual. Maybe it could have been two. I think there's three under the age of 18 at this time, two Four so far, one this summer. One this summer. Um, one during the Delta variant. And so it, for those under the age of 12 that are not currently eligible for the vaccine, uh, it is highly um, unusual uh, for there to be any significant, um, significant effects. Reeves did reiterate his belief that COVID vaccines are safe and effective and emphasized that he and his wife were fully vaccinated. That message comes amidst a surge in virus cases and deaths occurring largely in unvaccinated people. Here's State Health Officer Dr. Thomas Dobbs, who spoke alongside Reeves Friday. 
When we look at the deaths that we've had over the past four days, I want to do a little bit of a dive. We've lost four healthy people in their 20s, two of whom were pregnant, zero vaccinated. If we look at those who were in their 30s in the past four days, we've lost 10 people in their 30s. And these aren't people who are chronically ill, cancer patients. These are normal people who were at work last, you know, or a couple of weeks ago. Ten people in their 30s have died from COVID, zero vaccinated. If we look at those in their 40s, we've had 12 die. Two of those were vaccinated. And then if we look at those who are in their 50s to 60s, 17, uh, 50 to 60, 17 have died and one was vaccinated. I mean, there's a pattern here. We are seeing um, clearly vaccine breakthrough, but by and large, the vaccine's been incredibly protective and helpful, and especially for people who are under 50. Friday, the state reported over 5,000 new cases of COVID. That number obliterates the all-time record for daily cases within Mississippi. We expect an updated case count this morning. Coming up, one Mississippian shares her experience with COVID-19. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. National and state leaders, including Governor Reeves, describe the current COVID-19 surge as a pandemic of the unvaccinated. For Jordan, who lives in Mississippi, a vaccine wasn't enough to prevent a COVID-19 infection, but it may have staved off a far worse outcome. When I was eight years old, I had a bad case of pleurisy, which is like an infection on the lining of the lung. And so it caused some scar tissue. So that makes me more susceptible to getting pneumonia if I get the common cold. So I knew that it was really important to get the vaccination because if I got COVID, it could be serious fast. When did you start feeling symptoms? I spent some time with my neighbor, my friend, and she has a five-year-old. We live next door, so I don't wear a mask around her. We spent the day, like, in the yard with the kids. And that Monday, I had just, like, a tickle in my throat where I felt like kind of a dry cough. And so I called my family practitioner, and he was like, you know, let's start you on a Z-Pack. <clears throat> I'm sorry, my voice still gets tired. Um, he said, let's start you on a Z-Pack. So I did that, and Wednesday, it was worse. I woke up, and I had about 103 fever. I was shaking. I was having difficulty breathing. And so I called my sister, and... She came and got me from my house because I could not drive, and she took me to the doctor. Now, in the midst of this, my neighbor called me and said that her five-year-old tested positive for COVID that day, asymptomatic, but that six people in her daycare class had tested positive. So I get there, and, you know, you have to wait in your car. Well, I go in, and they went ahead and tested me for COVID and the flu. This was not at your doctor's office. This was somewhere else? It was um, after hours. We went to a trust care. Mm -hmm. And the nurse practitioner came in, 
And after the nurse had taken my vitals and he was like, it is positive. And he listened to my, you know, listened to my breathing and he heard some crackling on that left lung, which is where I have that calcified granuloma that so easily catches pneumonia. Um, and he gave me a prescription for like some Flonase and stuff. And so I said, okay, well, my, I go to like a family pharmacy and it closes at seven. Well, it was about seven thirty. And he said, you cannot wait till, until tomorrow. He said, you're going to have to go to the 24 hour one. And so, I, um, did that scare you? It did, but it was hard because there are a couple of days in there that I do not remember at all. And so I remember getting kind of weepy and telling him, I'm sorry, I'm crying. And he's like, with how your body's reacting right now with this, if you had not been vaccinated, you very well would already be probably on a ventilator. The hospital actually called and they set up a time for me to come and to get the antibody infusion. And this is the monoclonal antibody treatment? Yes, it is. And so at at 6.30 Friday morning, my sister took me to Baptist, and I got there, and I don't really remember. I know that they came and got me in a wheelchair. It took me up, and it was about two hours, and about 48 hours after I got that antibody treatment, I finally was able. My breathing got so much better. The cough got better. Of course, I still can't taste or smell, but honestly, that is the least of my worries. I'm about three weeks from diagnosis now, and I am still exhausted. I still have some headaches. It is difficult for me to think sometimes. They call it like the COVID fog. I just have trouble... Um, the other day I was filling out some paperwork and just got stumped on my, what my address was. And that kind of scared me. Jordan, because you're still suffering the effects of COVID with the fatigue and, and other things, are you able to work or are you laying low and just taking care of yourself? I'm working. I've been going to the doctor regularly, checking, you know, they'll check my blood. They checked the pneumonia. The pneumonia is not contagious, and it's almost gone. It takes a while for pneumonia to get completely out of your system, so it's not there. But I'm at work. I'm at a job where it's imperative that I'm there. But when I get home, I am you crash in bed well before the sun goes down. Mm-hmm. I thank you for sharing your story with us, and uh, certainly wish you the best. Moving forward, I hope that this fatigue goes away. I hope you get your taste and your smell back and that uh, it's smooth sailing from here on out because you've had quite the ordeal, it sounds like. Jordan, whose last name we're not using, uh, thank you so very much. Well, thank you very much, Karen. Experts say fewer than 5% of new COVID cases occur in vaccinated Mississippians. Coming up, COVID isn't the only epidemic in the Deep South. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks.
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. While COVID-19 cases continue to devastate the Gulf South, the region's HIV-AIDS epidemic rages on in the background. Cities like New Orleans and Jackson, Mississippi, already had the highest rates of HIV-AIDS in the country, particularly among the black population. And HIV testing, an important part of prevention, plummeted during the pandemic. As Shalina Chatlani of the Gulf States Newsroom reports, experts are worried. When COVID-19 cases surged last March, New Orleans resident Andrea Joyner felt like she had a target on her back. As a woman of color with a compromised immune system, she was more than a bit cautious. And I kind of secluded myself, even with me having a roommate. You know, I would peep out of the door and then I would spray the Lysol and run through the house and wipe off. Joyner is a transgender black woman and was diagnosed with HIV in 2005. Her anxiety was so crippling, she delayed doctor's visits, picking up her medications, and was even reluctant to see her son. She says her HIV-positive friends had similar fears. I kind of had this conversation with them to see if they were feeling the same way, and most people were, so we kind of started like this chat group to where, you know, are you alive? Joyner was able to overcome her anxiety and stay on track with her health. But she's worried about others who are at high risk for getting HIV, who are putting off getting tested. They might not know if they have HIV or are spreading it. And the average number of HIV tests conducted every month is way down. Data acquired from health departments show that in Louisiana, it went down 33% between 2019 and 2020. In Alabama, there was a 25% decrease. That's not to say that HIV has gone away. Veronica McGee is the deputy director of Brotherhood, Inc., a community-based organization in New Orleans that offers HIV testing and other health services. She says we don't have the data yet on whether HIV has gone up. But I would wager what we will see in in the next couple of years is an increase in the number of persons who have been newly diagnosed as HIV positive. When the stay-at-home order was put in place last year, some clinics remained open. But most community-based organizations had to shut down. The people who felt more comfortable going there all of a sudden weren't able to. Brotherhood was able to open up late last year. But McGee says testing is still slow. Since people have other needs that are more pressing at the moment, HIV testing is taking a back burn. The decrease in HIV testing is especially concerning since southern cities like New Orleans already had high rates. According to the CDC, half of all new cases in 2018 were in the south, and the majority are within the black community. Even before COVID-19, McGee says people in the South confronted multiple barriers. There's a lack of healthcare infrastructure, high rates of poverty, limited transportation. The social determinants of health that make persons susceptible to HIV are the same social determinants of health that make a person more likely to come down with COVID-19. Sociologist Christopher Roby works to address those access and cultural issues with the Community Health Center Association of Mississippi. He says to overcome them, Healthcare providers have to emphasize and educate people about preventative health care in every possible setting. Students are coming back to the college campuses and there are communities, uh, groups that are functioning. And our goal is to partner with all of these organizations and people and offer HIV screenings as they're there. With HIV, there's a big stigma factor. Roby wants to eliminate that 
starting by making HIV screenings a routine part of primary care doctor visits. When you offer it to every patient that walks through that door, it doesn't seem like you're singling out a particular population based on their behaviors or their gender identity. Ruby says it's even more important now to ramp up these efforts as the Delta variant surges across the South. People are going to have to go back into the homes as we see the rise of new COVID cases coming up. They're still meeting people online. They're still taking risks. COVID-19 will, of course, remain the center of attention for a while. But health officials across the Gulf states are realizing they need to reprioritize efforts that help control the HIV epidemic. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Shalina Chatlani. The Gulf States Newsroom is a partnership between WWNO in New Orleans, WBHM in Birmingham, and Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Coming up, almost 200 American schools still bear the names of Confederate leaders. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The Mississippi Department of Health has just released numbers representing cases from Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. That number is 7,839 cases and 52 deaths. Last week, the Southern Poverty Law Center released a list of 198 American public schools that bear the names of Confederate leaders. Here's Leisha Brooks, who's chief of staff for the SPLC. The naming of these schools was part of a campaign led by the United Daughters of the Confederacy to rebrand the events of the Civil War, especially in Southern schools. They did this in order to marginalize black history and mount a resistance to the progress that was being made during the civil rights movement. We know that based on previous census data, that K-12 schools are now predominantly serving children of color. Just one of the many reasons why it's so important to change these names. Robbie Luckett is the director of the Margaret Walker Center at Jackson State University. He was also involved in the removal of Confederate names from three Jackson public schools, and he joins us now. I think that it's important for us to know these things and to to have this knowledge about where this history of the Confederacy has been commemorated for so long. Because once we we have the the information, once we, we know where these things are, we can start thinking about ways in which our society today would like to better commemorate our history and our past. Because I, I for one, as a historian, believe that monuments deeply matter and, and memorials deeply matter and the representations of the society and the communities that we live in. And we certainly know being in, in the South, being in Mississippi, that these are represented all over the place. And most of them have their history in segregation, in the rise of Jim Crow at the at the turn of the 20th century. A whole nother wave of them come about during the civil rights movement as an homage to the kind of white supremacist society at the time. And so now that we're in the 21st century, now that we're in, uh, in, in an era where social justice and civil rights at this moment are kind of at the forefront of our thoughts, 
people with this knowledge can can look at these memorials and monuments and say, are there better ways for us to represent ourselves in our society today? So I think it's incredibly important information and gives us an opportunity to do something that will better represent us and, and provide, I think, I hope, inspiration for younger generations as they're coming of age. Robbie, it is remarkable to me looking at that list to see how many vestiges of the Confederacy are still represented throughout so many states in this country. Do you have some stats you can share with us, like total number of uh, monuments or schools that are named for Confederate generals or similar people? I know, you know, for instance, in Jackson and in Jackson Public Schools, the changes of three schools in particular here in our own community have been incredibly important. And you're talking about a state of Mississippi where at the end of the American Civil War, this was a, a majority African-American state. And African-Americans would be the majority of the population through World War II and today represent the highest percentage of any population of any state in, in the nation. And so for, for, for those people in particular, the Confederacy is a harmful and, and hurtful reminder of, of, of a past that was meant to entirely subjugate that part of our population and was damaging to all people, not just African-Americans, right? When we look specifically at our communities and the ones that we recognize, the opportunity in a place like Jackson, where we are a school district that is over 90% African-American, we can look at the naming of schools after great people like Ida B. Wells, like Aaron and Ali Shirley, like even Barack Obama, as means to really honor folks who were great Americans, who've made incredible differences in the lives of people who are represented within our in, within our own school district and within our, our own communities. And I think that's really important work. I know two of the schools, maybe all three, the name change was announced at the end of 2020. Have all three schools transitioned to their new names? Are they up on the schools? Are they on the letterhead? Are they on the newsletters? Yeah, so we, we have seen all three transition. The, the first one was Jefferson Davis Elementary that a number of years ago transitioned to Barack Obama Elementary, and that was the first one to, to really happen. And then the um, the other two, Lee Elementary and, of course, Power APAC, which was named for the Confederate leader John Logan Power, transitioning to Aaron and Ollie Shirley Elementary and to Ida B. Wells Elementary. Those transitions have happened, and those name changes have officially taken place. Of course, there are things that you have to do uh, in terms of renaming something as large as a school. There's there's funding things that need to happen in terms of the name changes, but officially that's all happened. The letterheads changed, and we're proud to be able to honor those people. You know, Aaron and Ollie Shirley, what incredible examples for our community and the work that they did, particularly around access to health care and education, and, and Ollie Shirley being a longtime school board member uh, in Jackson, you know, being able to honor those people in our communities, that's just, it's really important. It's important for our children and future generations to know who they were. And, and for me, Ida B. Wells is one of the greatest Americans who ever lived. And so I think these are just really remarkable ways to honor folks who should be important to us today and should be lifted up for the work that they did to really ensure that this country lived up to its ideals. And that's really what, what they were about. 
Robbie Luckett is the director of the Margaret Walker Center at Jackson State University. Thank you so much. Thanks, Karen. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.